Welcome to Verified Rx, your prescription for success. Brought to you by the Vizian Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. Heart failure is the most common cause of hospitalization and readmission in patients over 65 years of age and is a significant financial health care burden. The newest guidelines for heart failure outline management strategies and provide clinical direction. I'm Gretchen Brummel, Pharmacy Executive Director with the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence and your program host. Today, I'm joined by my Vizient colleague, Dr. Shannon Holden, Senior Clinical Director of Ambulatory Pharmacy and an expert in heart failure pharmacotherapy. Also joining us is Dr. David Bragan Sanchez, a cardiologist and heart failure specialist at MultiCare, Pulse Heart Institute. Welcome both of you to the podcast. Shannon, tell me a little bit about your professional journey before coming to Vizient. Sure. I am a pharmacist by nature. I spent about 15 years in ambulatory care started with the traditional anti-coag clinic, building on that into other spaces, anemia, neurology, rheumatology. And just a few years back, I moved over to multi-care to help out their neurology department, which prior to getting there, mostly dissolved. So I spent about six months helping finish out their neurology clinic things that they were doing and started reaching out to other areas, basically wrote an SBAR of why they need a pharmacist. Dr. Bragan had been asking for a pharmacist. So when and they saw that I was looking for a place to be and happened to be a pharmacist, I landed with him at the heart failure clinic. And that's how I ended up in cardiology. 15 years of ambulatory care work, and I've loved it all. I've moved on to Vizient now, which I absolutely love my position here. Thank you for that. It's nice to hear about your history together. Dr. Bragan Sanchez, tell us about your background. I'm a heart failure specialist here in Spokane with Pulse Heart Institute, where we cover the Deaconess and Valley Hospitals. I did all my training in medicine, internal medicine, and cardiology at the University of Puerto Rico. I then went on to University of North Carolina, where I did my heart failure training. And there I learned the importance of a clinical pharmacist. Shout out to Joellen Rogers, who taught me that. I'm still teaching there. Right now, I'm also doing an MBA over at Gonzaga here. Congratulations. Yes, she's a pillar in the pharmacy world for cardiology. So glad to hear you mention her. Shannon, why are we seeing such an increased focus on cardiology lately? We have our pharmacy market outlook here at Vizient that comes out twice a year. When we started prepping to write our summer edition, we just started looking at the movement in medications and the pipeline and what's coming down and all these new medications and their expensive medications in this cardiology department been a generically driven market for a long time. To have these medications that are super expensive, require prior authorizations, there's so much change for this service line in the sense of cost, clinic staffing, workflow, who's going to do these prior auth? Staff members haven't really had to do prior authorizations too often, and now they're being hit with them all the time. How do you work through that? How do you make sure patients can afford their meds and stay on meds? So a lot of just changes, not only with the medications that are approved and coming, but also with clinic and staff workflow. The other thing is guidelines are changing how we're using these medications and screening for things. That all takes somebody to do it. So that's a big piece of it. To not highlight cardiology right now would definitely not be helpful for your service, for your clinics. And operationally looking at that would be very difficult to ignore the facts and these things that are going on. 
we did highlight it in Pharmacy Market Outlook. We did do a webinar last month highlighting cardiology again, but the medications that are coming into this field, the pipeline is really strong with new mechanisms of action, new medications to compete with what we have. So that's why I think it's really important to look at this right now. Well, thank you for that. And we'll be sure to link to the Pharmacy Market Outlook in the show notes, Shannon. Appreciate you highlighting that. I know cardiology is very guideline driven and heart failure is no exception to this. What updates have we seen recently to these guidelines? In terms of guidelines, it's really been the European Society of Cardiology who has been very active in terms of how frequently they're updating their heart failure guidelines on average every two to three years. Their last guidelines were 2021. The American Society of Cardiology in conjunction with the American Heart Association and the Heart Failure Society of America have been trying to keep pace and actually they do have the latest guidelines from 2022. And they don't exactly mirror each other, but they have been sort of reinforcing a few key concepts that I find. For heart failure, the important concept of dividing the pathology based on things that physicians and practitioners in general understand, like an ejection fraction, making that distinction between what is HEFREF or heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, the introduction of the heart HEFMERF or heart failure with mid-range ejection fraction, and then HEFPEF, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, because it is important that each of those is treated differently and the response that we have, and like I tell my patients, it's very easy for me to treat you with HEF-REF. I've got a repertoire of medications that I could use. And if you're HEF-PEF, it is much more difficult. It hasn't been until now that we finally have the SDLT2s, which have proven efficacious in reduction of hospitalizations. If you go back here, there is some data with CHARM and CHARM Preserved with Candesartan that had that key that will signal that a heart failure with preserved ejection fraction would reduce hospitalizations. And then some of the data of the CardioMEMS device as well, that it does reduce hospitalizations in those patients. Aside from that, we really didn't have very powerful data. There's also the great mystery of acute heart failure and how do we manage it. The guidelines have always mentioned various different therapies, but the data to back them up has been very poor in general. And now we are starting to see how the guidelines are saying, well, maybe we shouldn't be focusing on HEFPEF as just calling it diastolic dysfunction and that's it. It's why that's happening. So it's very exciting in heart failure to see that we're trying to emphasize conditions like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, like amyloid, which are conditions that we thought were described as rare and actually are not as rare. We just weren't smart enough to pick them up and screen out the patients. Now that we have specific directed therapies for those as well. That also makes it very exciting and promising and is a great benefit for our patients. Definitely a lot of complexities, and it's good to hear that we're learning more about some of those diagnoses that were previously thought to be on the rare side. We're also hearing a lot about quadruple therapy. What exactly is that, and what do our clinicians need to know about it moving forward? That's the other thing where the SGLT2s have been added to our triple therapy, which used to be our ACE, our ARNI, beta blocker, and MRA. And now we've got the SGLT2s, which are on par with those therapies. Our therapies used to be very cheap and very easy. Then the RNEs came along and added that layer of a branded medication. Now we've got the SGLT2s, which are going to be branded for a while as well. But getting those patients on quadruple therapy is the emphasis. I've been around long enough and old enough to remember when we were focusing on how patients before their discharge, if they were hospitalized, should be on an ACE and a beta blocker because that's how we reduced hospital 
specializations. One of the things that we still are feeling in cardiology is how do I incorporate this fourth medication that does have a degree of hemodynamic effects and electrolyte effects on patients and also brings in a significant amount of different side effects that the cardiologist usually wasn't used to dealing with, hypoglycemia and urinary tract infections and such. So it's conversations that we didn't have before. This also brings into play one of the other things that the guidelines have been trying to focus and have been a bit timid. They do say that a referral to multidisciplinary heart failure team is very important. And definitely this is one of those where I rely heavily on that because I haven't been following the patient for his urinary tract complications. Some of those questions we do ask, but we don't get them all. I reach out quite frequently to the primary care and say, I'm thinking of starting this patient on AMPA 10. What do you think? Because you're the one who has had that plan for managing their diabetes. Am I stepping on your toes or am I doing something inappropriate? Sometimes we get a great response like, no, this patient has had recurring yeast infection. So I don't think it's a great idea for that. Always when we start a medication, of course, you have to think of the risk cost benefit ratio. And that's one of the things that's important. So with these medications that are really crossing over different disease states, you're seeing that amped up collaboration across different disciplines. And that's always great to see improved communication. How are these guideline changes really impacting your patients and your clinic workflow? For us, it is getting them on the medication. So cost is right now one of those barriers. Also, there was a little bit of difference in the indications. EMPA had an indication for not only REF, but also MRF and PEF now, which DAPA didn't. The study for DAPA did get published recently, though, in the New England Journal. So we hope that it will get that indication soon. Because there is also the main thing that we tell patients, if I can't get the pill in your stomach, it doesn't work. And if the patient's insurance company says, my favorite medication is not EMPA, it's DAPA, or why haven't you tried metformin on this non-diabetic patient for their heart failure? Those are responses that we see and have to deal with as clinicians in general. So it is a barrier, but it is important that the focus should be to get patients on that fourth medication. There's also patient resistance as well. Doc, you've got me on all these medications. You're going to add another one? I feel great. Well, yeah, and it's presenting the data. And it is also shared decision making. And that's why having that multidisciplinary team for me is so important because it's not necessarily just having that conversation with me as the physician or with our APP. It's also the value of the clinical pharmacist also stepping in and having that conversation with them. Once that happens, the patient sometimes understands because one of us three just said the magic words that made it click in his brain and then he'll take it. You mentioned cost as a potential barrier, and I'm presuming that's one of the ways that you lean on your pharmacist for help. What are some other ways that pharmacy staff can contribute to care, and what really is their role in your clinic? We did a lot more inpatient where we had our own heart failure service. And that is actually one of the aspirations that we've had for our heart failure service here in Spokane, eventually to be able to have an inpatient service where our clinical pharmacist also rounds with us and helps us out. At Chapel Hill, it was a little bit more complex because it involved transplant as well. Heart failure patients by themselves get pretty complicated. 
that is one of the roles that we hope for in the future. Right now, there are different parts of the management of heart failure patients, that interaction of a complicated medication or a medication that we're not used to using. The clinical pharmacist really helps us understand interactions between different medications and those that should be avoided, going beyond just having them just help us out with PAs. Also, the REMS programs, which in our heart failure service, we did do a little bit of pulmonary hypertension, but most cardiologists are not actually using to dealing with REMS programs because they're done with a lot of pulmonary hypertension medications and other medications which require significant patient education, certification of that education, monitoring that is ongoing. Our patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, as we start them on a medication, they do have to be enrolled in that REMS program. They do have to have that education that has to be certified. And the interactions and follow-up for this new medication are quite complex. Our clinical pharmacist is helping us out with that very actively. And one of the other driving forces that we have for the clinical pharmacist program is trying to incorporate getting patients on GDMT quickly. Not just GDMT, but GDMT go doses. That's one of our pet peeves always in heart failure is I've got the patient on GDMT. Yeah, 3.125 of Carvedilol, 5 of Lysinopril, and that's it. When the patient's got a blood pressure of 140 over 90, and they're not doing that great with their heart rate in the 80s. Getting them to the gold doses is one of the things we've always emphasized, because that's where you get more bang for your buck. That's where you really reduce mortality. That's where you have an impact on hospitalizations and rehospitalizations, and reduce the economic burden of heart failure on the general medical economy. And that's one of the things that we're doing with our clinical pharmacists, or bouncing off those titrations so that there's seeing a practitioner in heart failure who understands what we're doing, is able to pivot if need be. Wait a second, now this patient is not dry. Now the patient's wet. So it doesn't make sense to go up on their beta blocker. Now it makes sense to go up on their ACE or ARNI. Wait a second, now they're dry. Now the renal function did something, so we need to adjust. That pivoting and understanding is why clinical pharmacists with heart failure background really is helpful. I can appreciate that. Shannon, you have a lot of experience in this space. Additional thoughts on the role of a pharmacist in this type of clinic? Yeah, I had the pleasure of working with Dr. Bryan for a little over a year. I had a strong background in anemia when I came in. So when I started talking to him, when I just came in to hang out for an hour one day and just see where could I fit in here, they were just starting to do a lot of iron screening. And one of their goals that they had as physicians to meet this goal of screening these patients, immediately I'm like, I got you. I got this. I have a huge background in anemia. So immediately wrote up some collaborative practice agreements and started helping to manage those for them. So that's one place that I was able to get in there and help rather quickly. The guideline-directed medication therapy and getting patients on gold dose or max-tolerated dose as soon as possible. There's lots of literature out there that keeps them out of the hospital. When we were started looking at access to appointments for him or to the mid-levels, it was really sad. You can't get patients in once they're discharged. It's very difficult. And the patients that need to be seen by Dr. Bragan, they were too far out. So we started working on that. How do we transition our titration patients over to myself so that I could titrate them and he could could see those patients that are just out of the hospital or high risk. That was taking a little bit longer, and this is probably a whole other podcast for this, partially because of writing collaborative practice agreements, figuring out the billing for pharmacists to bill for these services, because in Washington State, we can, we're providers, and we can get that status. So that took a lot longer than any of us ever wanted it to. 
Another place that we started looking at was transitions of care, because that's a piece of getting them in for those appointments. If you can catch them at that transitions post-hospital call and find out what medications they did go home on, because the hospital piece can be hard. We were still having a lot of patients that weren't discharged on triple therapy. And it's like, well, why not? And there's nothing in the notes saying, why not? There's a lot of layers to that piece. So we started working on how to do that better. And then medication review and education. And that goes on to even patient costs. A lot of these patients aren't just on heart failure medications. They may have atrial fibrillation or they may have other things going on. So we can get tunnel vision where they're just on these three or four medications and they're saying they can't afford it, but they're all generic. Well, they're also on Plavix and they're on Xeralto. Well, you start adding all these in, patients' monthly spend on pharmacy-related products is well over $200. These patients can't afford that. Using your pharmacist to look at that and call the doc that's prescribing Plavix and be like, well, Plavix has generic, but if they were on one, like Berlinta, can we switch this to a generic? And maybe they can't go on Entrustor right away. Maybe they do need to go on something else because if they're not taking the medication, it doesn't do us any good. So those are just some of the ways that we were able to move forward on these. The new pharmacist that took my position might be working on some things that aren't necessarily heart failure related. I think she's working on something closer in project to have the pharmacist involved in that as well. I love the division of labor, and it's wonderful to hear about the collaborative approach you took to patient care. And Shannon, we will definitely have you back on to talk about pharmacist billing. Thank you for bringing that up as an option. You both mentioned inpatient care, and there's been some discussion lately around initiating SGLT2 inhibitors prior to discharge in some heart failure patients. Either of you, what are your thoughts here? It's still a divided issue to my brain. Because when I was training, it was that goal of getting the patient on the beta blocker before they left the hospital. There was still significant resistance in the community of starting beta blockers and patients who had been just acutely decompensated. And you're adding this negative inotropic agent on board, which causes fluid retention as well. And you just had them in the hospital for two or three days, and you want to start them on this now and send them out into the community. What we saw and what was very clear from the data there was that those patients that didn't start the beta blocker upon discharge, that the plan was, I'll see them in a week in the clinic. They never made it to the clinic. They were right back in the hospital. And now it's fairly common, I get even concerned, that the beta blocker gets started before the ACE Arbor Arnie. I'm like, oh, no, either we start them in parallel or check the fluid status of the patient still in the hospital. But the message did get there. That was the important part. Most patients are at least being discharged on that medication. The MRA is still a touchy subject, but there is now some early data. There was the impulse trial with empagliflozin, which was not a huge trial. It was an interesting interesting composite endpoint, which was largely driven by quality of life. Patients were started on medication with acute heart failure in the hospital, and then they were followed for 90 days, and they did have an improved quality of life. But there also was some interesting data in terms of reduction of mortality. There were 22 patients who died on standard therapy versus 11 on standard therapy plus EMPA. Too small of a trial for it to really say that there's that big of a difference in mortality, but it is definitely thought-provoking. We have also barriers in terms of formulary. For example, my formulary does not have an SDLT2. So even if I wanted to, I couldn't start them right now. It is one of the things that we try to get done is our patient seen after hospitalization within seven days with a provider. Ideally, we'd love to have the bandwidth in the heart failure clinic for us to be that provider, but we don't. We then drive that patient should be started within that week. 
Ideally, if you've got a patient who is euvolemic, who has no significant electrolyte problems and an adequate borderline blood pressure, and in the study they were using patients who had systolics above 100 before they started medication, then that is a patient that if you've got it in your formulary, definitely get them on it. Definitely a complex issue with multifaceted decision-making. We've mentioned a couple different trials throughout the podcast. We'll make sure we link to all of those in the show notes. Take us back to the clinic setting. Do you have any future plans for expansion of the pharmacist role at your clinic? Or Shannon, do you want to add anything about future roles for pharmacists in this kind of setting? It'd be interesting to pull the entire U.S. and figure out how many heart failure clinics have pharmacists. And I think that's the start. And then from there, it's what is your heart failure pharmacist doing? It's so spread out. For Dr. Bragan's clinic, their pharmacist is really working to the full capacity of their license. Other things, as far as if you're in like his situation and the pharmacist there, moving more into the cardiology and helping out the other areas of cardiology would be great. I know that the clinic there would love to have a few more pharmacists in clinic to help with things. But for a lot of people, it's just starting at the beginning. One of the key things is to not hire your pharmacist to just do your prior authorizations. When I got there, I was like, no, 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 I am not a prior authorization pharmacist. And just holding to that, being like, no, I am happy to teach and help create workflows to make this easier for everybody. But if you're wanting to be in that clinical role, you need to hold your guns and find ways to be in that clinical role because it is needed. Moving into that inpatient space where we were, there's so much room for improvement on what pharmacy can do in the hospital space and linking that to your pharmacist in the outpatient space. And that's going to look a lot different. I'm hoping that someday he can make that happen at Multicare. It'd be so good for the patients. We're trying. Dr. Bergen, what are your thoughts on that? The first thing is for everyone who's listening is just really understanding what a multidisciplinary heart failure team is. One of the things that in my experience and as I went to different places and they would come to me and say, hey, I want to start a heart failure clinic. I told them a heart failure clinic is not me with a sign that says heart failure clinic on top. I am just one cog in this important machinery. And the clinical pharmacist was one of the most important parts of that multidisciplinary team. We've got our APPs, we've got our MAs, we've got our nurses, we've got nutritionists, we've got social workers. Because the problem with a heart failure patient is so complex that you need that team to really be able to back them up. If your hospital system or your clinic doesn't have the vision to really invest in that, that is usually one of the largest problems. The first thing you need to overcome sometimes is that. After that is really defining that you are a clinical pharmacist. As Shannon knows that one of the things we did was arm her with a stethoscope. That's one of the things we need. You are a clinical pharmacist. You're going to be laying hands on patients and helping them out, educating them. And it is provider management that you're offering, which is why I think in Washington State, they do recognize the billing for it. It is getting remunerated for the work that's being done. There is so much space for us to use a clinical pharmacist to the maximum of her license or his license that we just need to see in each setting of your clinic and you have to individualize it. What are your priorities? When she came in, one of the things we wanted to do was follow the guidelines for iron optimization, improvement of quality and reduction of hospitalization in patients who are iron deficient, screening them and treating them. That was what we wanted and it was a role that she was already doing she had a passion for. So she took that program to a completely different level. And it is really identifying what are your needs. And after that, you'll see more stuff you need. 
And ultimately, it's the patient that benefits from that broad, multidisciplinary approach in this setting. So thank you for sharing your model. Shannon, any last advice for pharmacists who want to get involved with this type of clinic setting and caring for these types of patients? Getting into those clinic meetings, figuring out where their pain points are. What is that clinic struggling with right now? And is there a place for you to help out? Do you have a solution that a pharmacist can help with? That's like the initial thing. It's just figuring out where you can help and then knowing what your state laws are, what you can and can't do. Almost everything that we do as pharmacists, we can do It's Can you do it like in, in Washington where I can write a collaborative practice agreement, see patients, bill for it? Maybe it's a step down from that. You're still able to do that. You just have to have a physician checking off on it every single time and you may not be able to bill for your services. It's looking for those places where you can make a difference. Maybe you're having to track all your work so that at some point you can prove your worth. There's a lot of different ways to get involved. Networking. I took a lot of what I learned from what I did in the gastroenterology clinics and the neurology clinics and just moved it to heart failure in the sense of the workflow and how to approach solving some of these issues. One of the things I could have done if I didn't know how to help them would be to start with smoking cessation. Like that's a big one for pharmacists that we can help out with. Plenty of people have collaborative practice agreements already written for this. So maybe if that's where you start, these patients do need to stop smoking. So there's a lot of different ways you can look at it and get involved. A big distinguisher is if you are going to get the opportunity to work in clinic, make sure it's clinical work and nothing against prior authorization, but it does need to be delineated. Otherwise, you will get kind of shoved over into doing prior authorizations and denials all the time. And I did help out with denials because that is a pain point for them as well, having to write those up and then track them down, make sure that they actually do something with that and your patient gets on therapy. But a lot of different ways for pharmacists to get involved, starting with where does this clinic need help and how can I help them? Those are all great suggestions. Thank you both so much for joining us today to share your perspectives and expertise. I am so glad you could be here. Thanks for having us, Gretchen. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. Please join us for more Verified Rx podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, and send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Verified Rx is your prescription for success and is brought to you by the Vizian Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. I'm Gretchen Brummel. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.